God promised David that his throne would be established forever, a covenant pointing forward to the ultimate king, the coming anointed one, who would redeem the world and sit upon the throne of Israel. David's reaction was praise and adoration. He offered thanksgiving to God and recognized his faithfulness to Israel, the one nation on the earth God went to redeem for himself as a people. Through the prophets, this king would come, first as a humble servant to suffer, but then to return triumphantly as the Lion of Judah, to establish his kingdom and reign forever from Jerusalem. This suffering servant and mighty king would establish a new covenant, a covenant of atonement that would go forth from Israel to the nations, shattering the chains of sin and death through his shed blood. This covenant would bridge the gap of sin, bringing Jew and Gentile together as the one new man in the eyes of God. Paul reminded the early Jesus followers that this new covenant would not cancel God's promises to national Israel through Abraham. Instead, the church would be grafted into the olive tree of Israel, finding nourishment through the roots which supported them. Furthermore, the prophet Jeremiah also gave a sign regarding this new covenant. The redemption of Israel would one day be complete as the broken kingdoms of Judah and Israel would come together, having the law written upon their hearts. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Have we surrendered to the King and chosen to serve Him? Reverend Peter J. Fast of Bridges for Peace Canada joins us now as we complete our series on the covenant. Well, Peter, it's been a great uh, past three weeks and fourth of the, of the series this morning, so thank you again for your ministry these past few weeks. And let's just show Peter our appreciation for his messages. Thank you. Thank you. Peter and I are good friends, and I just really appreciate, uh, Peter, how we've just got to know each other. We spent some time in Israel together a few years ago, and uh, that was such a blessing. And, you know, I just wanted to mention, kind of off the topic, uh, these videos. I know you were mentioning a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week, mm -hmm. that how much you really appreciated uh, these little uh, videos that play before the service. So I just wanted to say thanks to uh, Heather uh, Thunder for, she's the one that puts those videos together, and Agatha Moyer, of course, the one that uh, does the voice in there. They both do such an awesome job. So let's just show our appreciation to them this morning. So again, thanks, Peter, for uh, being with us these uh, four weeks. Uh, for anybody that hasn't been here maybe and heard Peter, uh, why don't you just share a little bit about uh, Bridges for Peace, where you work, tell us a little bit about the ministry, and then we look forward to what God's laid on your heart this well, morning for you, us. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, everyone. It is a blessing to be here. Um, this is like my home away from home. And uh, so like Chris said, I want to just uh, formally tell you a little bit about Bridges for Peace. Um, I'm the na Deputy National Director of Bridges for Peace. We're an international global organization with our international headquarters based in Jerusalem. But our national office in Canada is right here in Winnipeg. So this is where I call home. And uh, we are a reconciliation ministry. And when I think about that word, I mean, that's something we really need in every kind of way. Often we need to reconcile with each other, but we need to be reconciled to God. And so we are a reconciliation ministry of Christians reaching out to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, showing genuine Christ-like love, unconditional love. Because when you look back at history, there is a gap between Christians and Jews. And much of that gap has been caused through animosity, Christian persecution historically. And uh, so it's reached this point where many Jewish people don't trust Christians, they are, they're suspicious of Christians, there's bitterness, there's hurt, there's all kinds of emotional responses that uh, come about when a Christian 
meets a Jewish person. They may not show it, but they're thinking it. And many Christians think we know Jews and we don't, and many Jews think they know Christians and they don't. So Bridges for Peace spans that gap, showing genuine Christ-like love, a different type of Christian than many Jewish people have encountered. And uh, the work that we do in Israel are, is incredible. Our flagship program is a food program where we uh, feed over 22,000 needy Israelis every month. It's about 70 tons of food that is distributed. We have programs to Holocaust survivors. We have programs that repair homes. We have school programs, 400 children from 10 schools that get dental insurance and food and school supplies, all of this uh, from Christians who love and pray and support them. And we also offer opportunities for Christians to see Israel, to volunteer or just go on a study tour, to experience and learn about God's heart for Israel, which is just a, a thing that is much needed in the church today, in the global church. And so it is a privilege to be a part of Bridges for Peace, but also a privilege that I would be invited here um, to, to speak for such a good length of time as four weeks. Um, so I want to start today with our, our, our fourth part uh, to this covenant series. Um, the first week, three weeks ago, we talked about covenant as an introduction, uh, but we talked about covenant in the word chesed, the Hebrew word which expresses steadfast love. That is who God is, steadfast love, and that is part and parcel of covenant, uh, that it is constant, steady, he is faithful, and that's the essence of covenant. Uh, then two weeks ago, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, and we talked about the theme of faith. Abraham wasn't saved by works. His faith was credited to him as, as righteousness. And that covenant God established with Abraham had two prongs to it. On one end, it was going to be a, this national physical covenant established with his descendants forever. And the land was connected to that. And that it was established as a sign of faith to Abraham. On the other end, this covenant would have a global a tremor. They would have a global effect that all the nations of the world would be blessed through this covenant and through Abraham. And that's God's intention that the world would hear about who God is. And, and in, you know, when we have, like it's just incredible, we have the word of God. Uh, last week we talked about the Mosaic covenant and holiness, that theme of holiness at Sinai and Pentecost where God revealed his glory, poured out upon uh, Israel his glory. And and drew a line in the sand. If you're going to be my people, then I demand holiness. And we explored the purpose of the law and grace and that the law is a good thing. It brings us to Christ. It, it was never given to save, but it's like a tutor. That's what Paul describes. It's a tutor that brings us to Christ. It makes aware to us that we're lawbreakers. And it's God's perfect law. And the only one who's ever been able to perfectly keep it that has ever walked this earth was Jesus, the perfect lawgiver and the perfect law receiver, and, and uh, obeying uh, and living that out. And uh, that God, that Jesus also is the living, the word, the living Torah. And we saw that last week. And this week we're going to explore the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. The king and the bride of Christ. What is this all about? And we're going to look into that. So first of all, I want to start with who is David? Because if we're going to talk about the Davidic covenant... Let's talk about who David was, because God made this covenant with David, this uh, continued covenant. So we see David was anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. And this wasn't like a one-off thing. All the kings of Judah were anointed and chosen by, but anointed by oil. So every king of Judah was, you could call, an anointed one. 
And that's where we get Christ, Christos, which is the Greek from the Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, an anointed one, one who is marked with oil. So David was anointed with oil, as was Saul. We saw that earlier when you were reading in the, in the books there. But David wasn't just chosen by Samuel. David was chosen by God. So there's divine election. Remember, Samuel looks at all the sons of Jesse. They're all impressive. And then here's the young David, the shepherd boy. And so David is chosen by a divine election. And he's anointed. David would become king and he would end up unifying the tribes. And he unifies the, the, the kingdom. And he's famously known for his great faith in God. That's the thing. When we read about David, his faith in God stands apart. Uh, when he faces off with Goliath or when he's surviving in the wilderness, when he's being hunted by Saul, and the things that he encounters, God, his faith is mighty. Yet his faith is even mighty through great sin in response. How he responds when he's faced with and commits great sin. He, he, how, his response is repentance. He believes in God and he repents. He humbles himself. David was a great psalmist, a poet, a musician. He danced before the Lord. He's a great man, but he was also a fierce warrior against the enemies of Israel. Yet this is the unique thing. Even when he's fighting against these enemies, time and time again, and we see this in the Psalms, he prays that God would handle vengeance and wrath, for ultimately this was not his burden to bear. So he gives it to God. And David sought the Lord in everything, even in the pit of despair. Like when you look at his sin with Bathsheba and the fallout, like their, their firstborn son dies. His family is fragmented. His own son Absalom tries to kill him and usurp the throne. Broken relationships among uh, his children like Amnon and Tamar. Yet in all of those cases, he humbles himself and he beseeches the Lord with this broken, contrite heart. I mean, some of the most amazing words we read about of forgiveness and repentance come from David's lips. So David was passionate. He wanted to build God a house. But God said, no, you're a man of war. Your hands are covered in blood. You will not be the one to build the house. It's his son, Solomon, who builds the temple. But when we look at everything David is, he's probably best known as a man after God's own heart. He followed God relentlessly. And that is this, the choosing of David when we see this covenant that's going to be chosen uh, or given through David. So when we look at this Davidic covenant, we also see reflections of the Messiah in David's life. For instance, David, he's like a type of Christ. He's a type of Messiah. David had humble beginnings. He's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of his family. And he becomes the king of Israel. He unifies the nation. And he sets up his administrative government capital for the kingdom in Jerusalem. Now we look at Jesus. Jesus comes as the Messiah, but he comes as from a humble beginning. His mother was a young girl from Nazareth. His stepfather was a carpenter, a stonemason. And Jesus comes to deliver Israel and ultimately the world from the enemy of sin. He brought atonement from sin and set up a spiritual kingdom that will one day become this physical one when he returns. Jesus came first and foremost for the lost sheep of Israel, fulfilling the word of the prophets. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel goes to the nations. But he came as Israel's Messiah, and to the shock of many, he came to suffer. When he comes again, he will once more unite Israel and deliver them from physical and spiritual enemies. But he's also coming as the king 
Messiah the thro- and to set up His throne in Jerusalem. And He's going to restore this nation. And this nation will, of Israel will only be restored when they cry out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. When they look upon Him whom they pierced, as the prophet Zechariah says in chapter 12.10. And this correlates to Ezekiel 36, where God has, he, he has concern for His holy name. That's why He does this. And he says, I, because I have concern for my holy name, I'm going to gather you from all the nations and bring you back to this land, Israel. Plant you in this land. Then I'm going to cleanse you and restore you and pour my spirit into you and give you a new spirit, give you a new heart. This is all about God. It's not about us. It's not even about Israel. It's ultimately all about God. So these are the reflections. David cries out for God, the, the spirit to be upon him. And to stay upon him. And God promises to restore and uh, pour out his spirit. So there's many messianic prophecies also connected with David and tied to this. Messiah is going to come from the line of Jesse, David's father. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's David's hometown. Micah 5, 2 to 5. Messiah was born of a virgin. He's going to come as a humble servant. He's also going to come as a suffering servant, but he's going to come again to rule Jerusalem, the city of David, in Zechariah 14. Did you know that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies about Messiah, his identity and role? And apart from the national leaders of Israel who rejected him, many people, many people, almost everyone, pretty much, missed who he truly was. You think of John the Baptist, like, you know, sending a message like, are you the one that we should expect or should we be expecting another? What about the disciples? I mean, apart from Peter, who was, you know, kind of a little bit of a terrible sword wielder and took a guy's ear off, everybody fled. And even Peter said, I will never betray you. But this is an incredible thing of the veil that's torn down went through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And after that, thousands from Israel, thousands believe, not just common people, priests, the teachers of that nation, we read it in Acts 4, 36 and 6, 7, thousands of priests and people came to a knowledge of who Jesus is and who he was because they're looking back. But Messiah is also going to come as this, a conqueror and king when he comes back. And we, we, we often look at the, the triumphal entry when Jesus rides in on the donkey and we look at the prophecy in Zechariah and he, oh servant, he's coming humbly on a, and lowly on a donkey. And that's true. He was coming to suffer. But we also miss that image has a, has a two sides to it. Yes, he is coming humble and lowly. But what, why a donkey? Why is he riding into the city? And when we understand that the kings of Judah, when they were victorious in war, in battle, would often come back to the city and ride upon a donkey or a horse. And Jesus comes into the city about to suffer. He's going to. But it's almost like he's saying, look at this. Look at me. I am the king. When you see this face again, I will come back as a conqueror. And I will set up my throne. In Zechariah 12, we see God defends Jerusalem from the enemies of Israel. And he sets up his kingdom. And this will be like the angel of the Lord before them in Exodus going before the people. They will be shielded and protected. Now Israel is like a beacon, shining a light on the coming of Messiah. Some of those signs would be the ingathering of the Jews back to the land, the establishment of a Jewish nation in the land, rebuilding the ancient cities 
and the nations of the world gathering against Israel. Now, since May 14th, 1948, and the reestablishment of the state of Israel, after 2,000 years, 2,000-year exile, all of these things have come true or are in the process of coming true and being fulfilled. So have your lamps full of oil and your wicks trimmed. Jesus is coming soon. I really believe that. He is coming soon. Let's be ready. So let's look at the Davidic covenant. So God chooses, we already know some about who David is. God chooses David. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a few points, that this is an unconditional covenant which remains in effect and is fulfilled in Jesus. All messianic prophecies concerning everlasting rule of the Messiah are extensions of this covenant. This covenant also connects to the style of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the Abrahamic covenant was found in this royal grant treaty. God is the faithful king, looks at his faithful vassal, who is Abraham, and says, I'm going to reward you because you're faithful. No strings attached. I'm going to give you land, physical land for your descendants forever, and this is a sign of your faithfulness. Well, God in this case is the, is the, the faithful king. He rewards his faithful vassal, David, with a promise regarding land, his kingdom, his kingdom will last forever. The lands of his rule will be forever administered by the ultimate king from his line, a king from his physical descendants. That's the promise. In 2 Samuel 7.1, we see, I love the opening. The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. Oh, it's like you can just picture like David out there with, you know, just, oh, just relaxing. No more enemies. Well, no, he still has enemies, but God had given him rest. From all his enemies. And David is reflecting on the fact that he lives in this palace. And the Ark of the Covenant is behind a curtain. David's like, oh, he's looking around. He's like, how can I live in this palace? And the Ark of the Covenant is behind this curtain. And there's a Jewish tradition that fills in the blank of what's happening. And it says that David and Nathan, the prophet, were planning extensively for the future temple. And that David had had this vision of where it would be and what it would be like. And so they're planning, and, and we see Nathan's response to David, and he basically says, do whatever you wish for the Lord. Like, he knows his heart's in the right place. David, go and do what you want for the Lord. You know, he will bless you. Yet, that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan about David's request. And God says, have I ever needed a house? Really? Like, have I ever needed a house? Sure, David's heart is in the right place, but... Have I ever needed a house? And when we look at in, earlier in the, in, in the books of the scriptures, we see a house. Like we see the tent of meeting during the Exodus where the Ark of the Covenant was. That We see the tabernacle that stood in Shiloh. That's the, the story when Samuel's young and the, and the priest Eli. There's the tabernacle which stood at Shiloh for 369 years behind a veil. And we see that. Yet in 2 Samuel 7, 8, 13, we see that this incredible thing, that this covenant is unconditional, and there's going to be a kingdom attached to this. And we see a unique thing, because there's this, going to be this ruler who would be a son to God with God as his father. And these words are directly related to Jesus, the Messiah, in Hebrews 1, 5. We see that correlation. So I'm just going to read to you a little bit there. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. 
If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. There was an ancient Semitic thought that the son had the full character of the father. So the future seed of David would have the same essence of God. I mean, the whole book of uh, the Gospel of John, really the, one of the ultimate points that it's, it's proving is Jesus Christ as God incarnate. That's a central theme. And that phrase, if he commits iniquity, like what's happening there? As a human father disciplines his sons, so the Lord would discipline the seed of David if he committed iniquity. This has reference to the intermediary seed until Messiah's arrival. So any king of David's line from Solomon on. However, the ultimate seed of David will not be a sinner like David and his descendants were, as recorded in Samuel and Kings. The ultimate seed of David is going to be the sinless Messiah. So we're going to look at six points, a quick summary of the Davidic covenant. First of all, God will appoint a place for his people. Number two, God will arrange for the permanence of his people. Number three, God will uh, prevent oppression from his people's enemies. Number four, God will set up the Davidic dynasty, the house of David. Number five, God will establish the Davidic covenant or the Davidic kingdom. And six, God will ensure the certainty of the Davidic throne. And David's mighty response is incredible. And I don't have the time to read it, but read 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29. His response is like, that's David's quality, his character. Yes, Lord, I believe you. I want that. Please, by, you've given me your word. It will happen. And he says, who is like Israel? That one nation on the whole world that you called to redeem. Who is like Israel? You are a great and mighty God of hosts. Like his response is incredible. That should be our response. Like when we stand before the Lord in our devotion, in our prayer life, and when we're here like, wow, God is amazing. So this is where this new covenant comes right out of. This is going to, all of these covenants are going to be joined because in the new covenant, all the covenants, faith and holiness, kingship, marriage, all of this stuff is connected. But we must remember Jesus' own words when we also think and reflect on the new covenant, the purpose. When Jesus said in chapter 5 of Matthew 17 and 19, the law and the prophets will never be abolished, but they're fulfilled through Jesus. He completes this. There's nothing more to add to it. He is the final, the final thing. He is the complete fulfillment of that. He is the word. He is the one who established the new covenant, but he promises he will not abolish revelation in the past. He is who he is, past, present, future. You can't put him in a box. And he fulfills it. He is faithful. But we also want to look at this phrase, new covenant, this title, what this is. It isn't a New Testament concept. It comes right from the prophets. We look at uh, Jeremiah. So what is the context behind this? Jeremiah is witnessing the destructive days of King Zedekiah of Judah. 
and the approaching threat of Babylon. This prophecy of the new covenant comes out of this. Judgment is coming to Judah. Now what did Jeremiah see during his day? He was witnessing false prophets. He was witnessing sacrilege in the temple worship. Ritualistic legalism connected to the sacrifices which were supposed to be offered from a heart of love and obedience. But they become legalistic. Instead, there was corruption. The wealthy, wealthy people were taking advantage of the poor. And there was a king who had done great wickedness and a line of that. And so judgment is coming. And what Jeremiah, for all of his prophesying and for all of his words, gets rewarded by being thrown in prison and abused. He's the weeping prophet. But his response is prophesying about the coming judgment, the desperate need for repentance and restoration, and he looks through a supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired vision at a time when a new covenant will be established to correct all the failings that have come about through improper observance of the Mosaic covenant, the stumbling block of legalism and ritualistic ritualism according to the law, and the ultimate sanctification and fulfillment of the sacrificial system, total atonement. That is what he's looking forward to. Now, Israel has never perfectly upheld the conditions of the Mosaic, co the Mosaic Covenant they agreed to. Did you know that? They failed. Did you know that none of us are perfect? Maybe one? No? I don't see any hands? Okay. So Israel, like, Israel saw fire and smoke, the glory, the Red Sea, all of that. I'm thinking in their passion and, whoa, yes, we will do all that the Lord commands. I mean, the disciples saw fish and bread feed thousands of people. Wow. Yes, I'm on board with that. Peter said, I will never betray you. Ever. I'll die for you. He ended up dying years later, of course, for Jesus. But in that moment, they all fled. Isn't that like us? It's like, yes, I will do this. You read the scriptures. How many times do you read the scriptures? Wow, God is mighty. I will 100% surrender to you. And then 10 minutes later, the next day, oh, oops. Yet God will have mercy on them. Even more, he will never cast away Israel and Jacob. He will cleanse them, and he will for us. He will have mercy on us. And Jeremiah describes this Mosaic covenant as near vanishing, but will be fulfilled and given new life through the power of the new covenant. And the ultimate completed sign of this new covenant will be the writing of the law on their hearts and their minds and bringing the two split houses together. This is complete sanctification and rejuvenation. Now, why are they split? Remember the death, uh, the death of King Solomon, his son Rehoboam was taxing the people. They got ticked off. Rehoboam wouldn't listen to the wise old elders. He would listen to the young guys who said, tax them more, and the nation split apart. So Jeremiah's vision that he's seeing is that in this new covenant, it will be totally fulfilled by bringing them together in one. And this law that's being written on their minds and hearts, so they'll never again stray to the left or to the right but follow God fully and completely. So the central purpose of this is that they would know God, and not just know about Him, but know God. That phrase is an expression used of intimacy between a husband and wife. They know each other. It's like the two become one. So through this transformation, God will pour out His power and will forgive sins and iniquity. 
It's not just pouring out his power. It's not just making people feel good or, yay, you're back in your land. There's, there's total atonement. Because if it was just about the land, oh my goodness, there wouldn't be any hope. If it was just the law, there wouldn't be any hope. But it's the law and it's the grace and it's faith through action. So the land's a part of that. Because if we look at that, we have assurance. So God establishes this new covenant because Israel has broken the Mosaic. That's what Jeremiah says. God describes himself as a husband to Israel, his wife, but the wife has been unfaithful. However, God will bring her to his side once more, cleanse her, and he writes that marriage contract, the ketubah. He writes it upon her mind and her heart. She will be faithful, guaranteed, just as he writes it upon our hearts and minds. And so Jeremiah declares this unfailing unconditional love. That is really the essence of this. Jeremiah 32, 40 describes the new covenant is everlasting and it's pledged to Israel. Now the purpose of Israel is to bless the world. Israel just doesn't hoard it and protect it and hold it and covet it. The purpose of Israel was to bless the world. Not just to be a nation of priests within their own nation, but to be a light and bring the knowledge of God to the nations. So if this new covenant's going to come through Israel, it will have a global effect. That's God's plan. And Psalm 98.2 says, The Lord has made known His salvation, His righteousness He has revealed in the sight of the nations. Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So this new covenant in Jesus is like a double-edged sword. There's two sides to the blade, two sides to the same sword. The first edge is, was brought about by his earthly ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. And the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father, it is done. There's nothing more to be added to it. It begins as a spiritual kingdom. And this spiritual kingdom that has come does not invalidate God's promises to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. James 1.17, God does not change like shifting shadows. He is constant. His pledged covenant to national Israel was forever, and the new covenant ties everything together as promised by God to atone for all of mankind and be the ultimate ruler of Israel. The lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. Only atonement can come through blood. And the faith of Abraham, God is faithful in both the physical and the spiritual sense. So it starts with Israel. And he writes that law. He's going to write that law on their minds and hearts. God's eternal law of love. But the church is birthed out of Israel, out of a remnant of Israel. And it goes out for all people. The one new man. Ephesians 2.15. There is no Jew or Greek. There is slave or free or male or female. We're all one. Why? Because we all need atonement. Under God, we all need atonement. This isn't, Paul isn't saying, well, there's no longer males or females or Jews or Greeks or any of this. But in the essence of atonement, we all need it. There is no other antidote. This, we all need it. So this is given in a spiritual sense according to our condition as fallen humans. We all need the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus says that this blood he was purchased um, by His death and resurrection. This is what's going to happen. 2 Corinthians says that this Covenant is glorious. And the results of this covenant was that Jesus would be a high priest mediating on our behalf. We need a mediator. For those that do not believe that, that is pride. 
That is destructive pride. We need a mediator. We can't correct ourselves. Jesus becomes our mediator between sin and death because of sin and death. And he pays that penalty of of bondage of the law or the penalty of the law. This was the payment which was required to be paid by what the law revealed in us. We are lawbreakers. It must be paid. And it's clear that he seeks the salvation of the world. And it's, I mean, it's wrapped up in John 3, 16 and 17. Like, this is the new covenant. This is his purpose. And the second blade in closing, the second edge of that same sword is, is, continues with God's faithfulness. He's going to be faithful to the nations. He loves all the nations. And he chose Israel to reflect and radiate to the nations. The new covenant comes through them. As John 4.22 states, salvation is of the Jews. The promised Messiah is Jewish, but this is going to go to the whole world. So that second edge comes back to Jeremiah's prophecy and his vision. Israel will be rescued. There's going to come a time. We don't, we don't see it right now, but there's going to come a time when as a nation they have a new heart and they cry out to God. This is the new covenant and it's both its physical and spiritual salvation. We saw a miniature version of that at the birth of the church, a remnant who cried out to God and recognized the Messiah and had him him marked on his heart and their mind. But as a nation, we see that in Jeremiah. We see that through the prophets. And this is national ethnic Israel. This is God's faithfulness. And this is not a spiritual metaphor or some allegory. Israel means Israel. Israel is mentioned 70 times in the New Testament and not once does it refer to the church. If you try to do that, you come into some really strange waters. But the salvation of Israel is through this new covenant. This is the ultimate completion of it. And Paul writes in Romans, God has not cast away his people, Israel. He writes in 11, 25 to 36, that God will rescue them and he'll save Israel. But the purpose of their rejection, because they rejected, the purpose of their rejection was so that the Gentiles could hear the gospel. This is God's plan and mercy. But God also calls Israel, and his callings as God are irrevocable. And Israel remains elected even through their rebellion. That's a strange, strange thing, but even through the rebellion. And Paul uses this to compare uh, their disobedience, to compare to the disobedience of the Roman believers that he's writing. Before they were believers, they were disobedient. And he describes that, this is, this is, Their disobedience, which reflects Israel's disobedience, your disobedience, my disobedience. But if God will have mercy on us, Paul states, won't he have mercy or likewise mercy on Israel? This is who God is. Ultimately, Paul says, God committed national Israel to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. But he's faithful so he won't forget Israel. And in turn, when we look at all of that, it's just an amazing picture of who he is, what God will go to 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 reach us, even though we don't even deserve it, even though we're lawbreakers. God will send his son to die for us, to bring in this new covenant, to completely and once and for all atone for sin in a complete fulfilled way. So have you surrendered yourself to the king? Are you part of the bride of Christ? Are you part 
of what God is doing? Do you know what God is doing? Do you see it around you? And that would be my challenge to you. Let's live as servants to the king. Let's be in his courts, in his presence, and we will spend eternity with the king. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you that you haven't forgotten about us, that your son was obedient unto the cross, that he didn't just stay in a grave, but he rose and conquered death, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. All is complete, Lord. And your promise still stands forever. You will come back. You will set up your throne and kingdom. You will destroy and eradicate evil and wickedness and suffering. And we will stand before you one day, Lord. We will look at the face of the king. We, will be, we are children of the king for those that know you. We will one day unequivocally have in a way that we've never had before your word just on our hearts and minds. Never going to the left or right, but always following you and being in your presence. And we've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit and, and are being sanctified. We've been set apart. Oh Lord, we thank you for being faithful and keeping your word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and the prophets, and the disciples, and the apostles, and for God-fearing Christians throughout all of history, Lord, for keeping your word with Israel, your beloved and the bride of Christ, your church, and for being here with us and never forsaking us, and for being king, that nobody will dethrone you. And we serve a mighty, mighty God. Amen. Bless you all this week. It's been just a wonderful time. I've been touched. And we'll see you again. God bless.